So Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the power, spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remain in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. We'll keep your Bibles open to Luke 1. Uh, This is our first week of a 10-week series through the first five chapters of Luke's Gospel um, that we're going to be doing as we head towards Easter. Uh, And if you attend a home group, you'll know that our Bible studies, uh, this term, mirror our sermon series, which is is great. And so uh, many of you spent time this week Uh, reflecting on this passage in your home groups. My hope this morning, and and for that matter for this whole series, uh, I I hope to simply allow the Scriptures to speak. That's what's great about doing uh, a sermon series in this way, where you just, you pick a book and you say, I'm going to work through it uh, kind of methodically. It it means that the Scriptures actually dictate what we we reflect on each week. And so today, we're reflecting on a unique account that only takes place here in Luke's Gospel, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. And throughout this account, not only do we learn a lot about uh, the author Luke, which informs us of what's likely to come 
throughout his gospel, but we also see a consistency in that all of this is to serve as a clear, orderly and extensive account of who our Lord and Saviour is. In verse 4, we read that all of this has been done so that Theophilus would be utterly certain of what he has been taught regarding the Messiah. And to be honest, to be honest I think this is what it achieves for us as well. We know with some certainty that, that Luke was Greek. Uh, Luke is a Greek name, and, and in Colossians 4, uh, Paul lists his Jewish and then Gentile fellow workers for the gospel, and Luke is part of the Gentile list. It's also here that we discover that Luke was a doctor. So what we understand is that the author of this gospel is a Gentile. He's writing to a Greek man, Theophilus, and the whole vibe and language of this gospel is tailored towards a Gentile audience. And so when you consider this, it's quite a stirring thought. The Gentile mission, go and make disciples of all nations. There is neither Jew or Gentile for all are one in Christ Jesus. The major theme throughout this gospel and Acts is moving outside the bounds of the Israelite nation. When you take Luke's gospel and Acts, they form easily the largest section of the New Testament, making Luke the greatest contributor in the history of the early church. The greatest contribution to the New Testament is written by a Gentile for Gentiles. As I look around this room today, I think maybe this this means very little to us. I don't see any who would identify themselves as Jewish. But that's the whole point. I think sometimes we forget how incredibly blessed we are to even have the Scriptures. Most of us in the Western world are, are the people that Luke is addressing here, Gentiles. And so I guess... The question I find myself asking as I reflect on Luke's account of the saviour of the world, the question I find myself asking, do you have utter confidence in the Scriptures? Do you have utter confidence in the Scriptures? that's, That's Luke's intention here, is to write an orderly account so that we may have utter confidence in the Scriptures. I remember someone said to me one time, Uh, throughout life, you read the scriptures and you have to decide, is Jesus a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? I believe that Luke's intention in penning this account is to persuade any who would read it, but especially his Gentile readers, that this guy, Jesus, he's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. He is Lord. Some people experience uh, miracles, others maybe a prophetic word. For myself, I haven't necessarily had that. And to be honest, I'm not disappointed. Part of me is a little bit disappointed, but, but I'm not necessarily that disappointed because it has allowed me to build my faith on the firm foundation that is the Scriptures. I believe you can trust the Scriptures. I believe the Scriptures are without error. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures have revealed to me that Jesus is Lord. And I believe that is the intention of Luke's Gospel for all of us. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Do you have utter confidence in the Scriptures? That's my question for us today. And I do believe that as we reflect on what some might call kind of secondary information, 
So many people would pass over this rapidly and fail to take note of the fact that, that I believe all of this serves to give us an assurance of what we read. And so I've kind of touched on the first four verses, and I hope I've been able to give a sort of introduction uh, to this gospel as a whole. But let us now turn our attention to the birth of John the Baptist, foretold. From verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So we're introduced to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both descendants from the brother of Moses, Aaron. And we read that they are righteous before God, blameless in regards to the law, and yet they were childless, which is important because we read throughout Scripture that children are a blessing from God. Psalm 127, you may know it really well. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And so the question remains, why has God not blessed this righteous and godly couple with a child? And for any of us who know our Old Testament well, we should be reminded of another couple in the Scriptures. Another couple who, despite being righteous before God, were also unable to bear a child. I'm thinking Abraham and Sarah. And so we see this consistent story throughout Scripture, of God using those who by every metric are unable to conceive a child and God miraculously gifts them a child, but not just for their joy and satisfaction. No, also to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. So we've got Abraham and Sarah with Isaac. Isaac is taken up Mount Moriah to be sacrificed, which ultimately reveals the coming Messiah and his death for our sins. We reflected on that a few months back. Think Elkanah and Hannah, who give birth to Samuel. In Acts 3.24, we read, Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Samuel prepared the way for the Messiah in his prophetic ministry. And now you have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who give birth to John. And we read now of how he is a gift from God. Once again, not just for their joy and satisfaction, but this child has a role to play in preparing the people for the coming Messiah. Let me read now the prophecy of John's birth. Verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we have this incredible prophecy of a man who will go before the Lord in the spirit and power 
of Elijah. Now, once again, uh, this should draw our attention back to the Old Testament, back to the prophet Elijah, arguably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And we remember Elijah's ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel during a time in Israel's history that was truly quite terrible. Israel had a, a dreadful leader in King Ahab, who was married to Jezebel, who worshipped Baal, if you remember. And so Elijah's role, as with all the prophets, was to turn the nation back to Yahweh, away from these false gods, and to lead them to repent of their sins and return to their true God. And you'll remember that he achieves this in some part due to these amazing miracles. But primarily, it's through the unshakable, bold proclamation of God's word. Now, there's a really interesting prophecy in Malachi 4, 6 and 7, which talks of God sending the prophet Elijah before the coming Messiah. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and he will prepare the way for the Lord. Now, that's exactly what we see here in Luke 1, verse 17. And so what we notice is that John's role in preparing the way for the Messiah is, just like Elijah, to turn the people away from their sin, to repent and return to their God. Now, if you still doubt this, Jesus says in Matthew 11, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. Now, if we look at at all of this, these first 17 verses in Luke's Gospel, through the lens of the question I proposed earlier, do you have utter confidence in the Scriptures? What we read here, I believe, should absolutely fill us with confidence. Don't you think? Not only is God's Word carefully and methodically recorded through eyewitness accounts, but we also learn something that we should already know. We should already know this. God fulfills his promises. Amen? The birth of John the Baptist is not a random event. It's not recorded here by accident. No, this was prophesied 400 years earlier. And we know because we've read ahead and we know of John's ministry that this prophecy given to Zechariah comes true. John was filled with the Spirit and he did prepare the way for Jesus. These verses of Scripture should absolutely fill us with confidence, utter confidence in the Scriptures. The next section we're going to look at is is verses 18 to 25, where we see two incredibly different responses to this message from God. And I think by examining both of these responses, we can learn something of how we are to respond to God's Word. When God communicates with us, how are we to respond? And so first we have Zechariah's response, verse 18, we read, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, my first response is, wow, that's pretty rough. (laughs) I know if I was in Zechariah's position, I would have questions and and perhaps I would have doubts. I think what God is saying here, through his angel Gabriel, is, is Zechariah, you know the Scriptures, right? You know the Scriptures and you know me. 
You know that every breath you breathe, I have enabled. Do you really doubt my ability to bless you with a child? You see, this, this response from Zechariah, it wasn't just a clarifying question uh, or, or maybe mere shock. No, Gabriel identified it as a lack of faith. And what we clearly see here is that God requires that we have faith in him. I can imagine God thinking, you guys make airy-fairy promises all the time. You say you'll arrive by 6, but you arrive at 6.30. You make promises to yourself that you won't keep. I will not eat any more chocolate this week. You promise to be a good husband or wife and you fail. You promise to be a good parent and you fail. God must be thinking, just because you can't keep your promises, that doesn't mean you should doubt me. Especially when God has come through on every single one of his promises. He keeps them all. And so Zechariah's punishment here is someone who knows the scriptures he knows his Lord Yahweh, his punishment is fitting, right? If we read on further, we see that Elizabeth did not make this same mistake. When she became aware of God's promise, she responded with thanksgiving. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. And so we see two very different responses to God's promise here. And it's helpful that we have both because Elizabeth's response shows how we are to respond and Zechariah's reveals how we are not to respond. And so I guess, I guess the question remains, how are we to respond to God's word? My first question was, do you have utter confidence in the scriptures? Now I ask, if so, how are we to respond? The, the first step, before we can even begin to consider how we are to respond, is, is do we actually believe God's word? Do we trust the promises of God? And ultimately, do we trust the promise of everlasting life? For God so, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I don't think any of you said that with me just then. That's all right. Can we do it again? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe it? That's got to be the first question. Before we can consider how to respond, do you believe it? I said it before, was Jesus a lunatic, a liar, or is he Lord? I myself, I cannot spend any measurable time in the scriptures without absolutely believing it. And that's not anything that, to do with me or, or my ability to comprehend things because I read other things and I can't comprehend them to save myself. But when I read the scriptures, there is a work of the Holy Spirit that means that I actually believe them. Do you have that? Yeah? Great. Do you believe the scriptures? If you're here today and you just think, I don't, I have my doubts. Perhaps you believe it's, it's not consistent with science or philosophy. Perhaps you just won't believe unless you see Jesus in the flesh, and so you're waiting for that. I've had so many people say that to me. Maybe if you truly ask yourself, you actually don't want to believe it. It all makes sense, but believing it has too many repercussions. Let me tell you, none of us are able to humble ourselves and believe the Scriptures without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And so for you today, your prayer should be, 
Holy Spirit, work in my heart. Reveal the truth of the scriptures to me. Reveal the gospel to me in such a way that I never doubt it again. Humble me. Quieten me. Submit me to the Father's will. I do believe that if you, if you ask God to open your eyes, your eyes will be opened. That can be our prayer as a church as well. That has been a consistent prayer throughout Scripture, that God would open blinded eyes, open eyes to the work of His Son, Jesus. That can be our prayer as a church, that more and more would have eyes to see the gospel and accept Jesus. The other question was, how do we respond once we believe the Scriptures? We see one example here with with Elizabeth. Uh, We give all glory to God and be thankful. What else? We trust in His plan, in His sovereignty, in His goodness, in His forgiveness. When He leads us, we follow, we obey, we submit. We continually repent of our sins and return to God. We spend our days sharing of his mercy and love and we desperately pray that more and more might come to know him. We're about to close with this great song of praise, standing on the promises of God. We should absolutely do that. When life is hard and messy and perhaps sad, remember God's promises. Stand upon them. Allow them to form a firm foundation. If you are here today and the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth of the Scriptures to you, then Jesus is not a lunatic. He's not a liar. He's your Lord. He's your Lord and Saviour. And coming to that place of awareness has some big repercussions. It does. You have to give over your sin, which we all love. We have to repent and turn to Jesus. You can't continue to worship these false, wicked gods these idols all around us. Uh, We we have to begin to to, um, not trust in in our own strength, in our own ability or our own intelligence. No, we need to offer our lives to Jesus. Decide that your life is no longer yours. It's Christ's. That he may do with it what he pleases. Galatians 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Would that be the posture of our hearts? That that we hear the Scriptures by the work of the Holy Spirit that we might believe them and then we decide it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. So my life is an offering, yeah? My life is actually His to do with it what He pleases. Do you have utter confidence in the Scriptures? If so, how are you going to respond? Take a moment and consider those two questions. And then I'll close with prayer. Father God, we thank you that that for many of us, if not all of us, the uh, truth of the scriptures have been illuminated to us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have opened 
blinded eyes. I know that I have had blinded eyes and, and you have opened them. Father God, we thank you for the work of, of so many people throughout the scriptures who put in really hard, methodical work to ensure that these scriptures that we read, uh, they're so hard to doubt. Heavenly Father, we have many in our world who would argue otherwise. Uh, they would point us to, to um, other uh, bases of understanding and, and other um, points of conclusion and, and they don't start with the same foundation that we start with. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do a work in the, in the hearts of all those people out there who either don't believe the Scriptures um, because they, they simply uh, don't believe them, or Heavenly Father, those who um, aggressively deny the Scriptures. Maybe they believe them, but they don't want to believe them. Father God, would you do a work in their hearts? Father, I, I pray... For all of us who have identified um, over a long time that, that these scriptures that we read, they're inerrant, um, they're, they're trustworthy, we can build our faith upon them. I pray for all of us who have done that, that we would then know through the work of the Spirit how we are to respond. Father, would you make our lives a sacrifice? W would they be a pleasing offering to you? Would our lives actually give you glory. Father, we know that first and foremostly you are for your glory, so use our lives for your glory. May we be obedient and humble. May we submit ourselves. May we sacrifice what we love, which is usually sin. May we give that all over to you, Heavenly Father. Would we lay it at the feet of the cross and trust in the sanctifying work of Jesus in our hearts? Father, would you fill us with a confidence and an, and an absolute assurance of our salvation so that we wouldn't walk through this life with a limp, Heavenly Father, that we may rejoice in this life as we expect uh, our future salvation. Heavenly Father, would, would the focus of evangelism, of sharing the good news of Jesus, consistently be at the forefront of our minds? Would we devote so much time and energy and effort into sharing the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray that we wouldn't, we wouldn't hide the light of Jesus, the light of the world, but we would actually seek to shine it with our own lives. I pray that we would be salt and light in this world. Father, I, I, I'm aware that there may be some here who haven't yet accepted Jesus, and so I want to say, would you do a work in their heart? Would you... Allow them the strength to be aware of their sin. Would, would they turn away uh, from their sin? Would they repent of it? Would they believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord? Would they confess it with their lips that Jesus is Lord? Father, I pray that we may stand on your promises. Would the scriptures and your promises throughout the scriptures, would they form the firm foundation that we can build our faith upon? Father, thank you for all of your provision, your goodness, your blessing. Thank you for um, the way you challenge us, the way you push us, uh, the way you, you, you push us out of our comfort zones. Father, would we, would we boldly follow? Would we be obedient? Would we live lives that are all for your glory? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.